It's our opportunity to read together in God's Word. Please turn for our Old Testament reading to Psalm 51. Be reading the chapter, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my, from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in my sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your own good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then then bowls will be offered on your altar. Turn to the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, we'll be reading verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful to Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were, who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the, to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. In Hebrews 13:7, we read, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God, consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. Psalm 44, verse 1, we, we read, We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days, in days of old. And then Psalm 145, verse 4, we read, One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. These verses serve as an apology for giving a message about another human being with feet of clay, yet who was used by God to help further the cause of truth in the world and in the church. John Piper says, God ordains that we gaze on His glory dimly mirrored in the ministry of His flawed servants. He intends for us to consider their lives and peer through the imperfections of their faith and behold the beauty of God. The faithfulness of God triumphs over the flaws of men. And the man I want to talk to you about today is one who points us to God in a way that we might better behold His glory. I've often struggled over whether to refer to this man of God as by the name Augustine or Augustine. It depends, on, I guess, on what part of the world you live in or are from. My friend Leonardo di Carico from Italy say, says it's pronounced Augustino. <clears throat> my, uh, my friend Ramon Perone from uh, Quebec says it's Augustine 316. I remember a seminary professor saying, St. Augustine is in Florida, but St. Augustine is in heaven. So I'll be referring to him as Augustine, though I occasionally slip and call him Augustine. Either way, you'll know who I'm talking about. And one thing is for certain, and that is that Augustine is remembered as the greatest Christian philosopher and theologian in the early church. He has been called the father of fathers, the doctor of doctors. Others have labeled him as the theologian of sovereign grace. He was born in the year 354 in a small town of North Africa, which is now situated in eastern Algeria. Augustine's father, Patricius, was a man of some influence in his town, but seems to have had a somewhat crabby disposition and to have been quite a challenge to his godly wife, Monica. Yet her influence and prayers for him had their final reward when Patricius, a long-time heathen, became a Christian and was baptized later in life. His main interest in his son Augustine focused on preparing him for a career of fame and fortune. Augustine attended school as a boy and at the age of 16 he went off to Carthage where he soon made a name for himself as a student teacher in the school of rhetoric. 
And perhaps you've heard the old saying, behind every great man is a surprised mother-in-law. Well, while Augusta never had a mother-in-law to impress, he did have a mother of exceptional quality, exceptional piety, whose great sorrow in life was over her wayward son. Among the great Christian mothers of history, Monica has a well-deserved respect, and her grateful and gifted son has embalmed her memory in beauty and tenderness in the pages of his writings. Augustine writes, O God, my mother, your faithful servant, wept for me before you more than mothers weep for their dead children. By the faith and spiritual discernment which she had from you, she perceived the death which held me. And you heard her, Lord. You heard her and did not despise her tears, which poured forth to wet the ground under her eyes in every place she prayed. When she was asked, when she asked a bishop to make time to talk to me and refute my errors, he declined. When he said this to her, she was still unwilling to take no for an answer. She pressed him with more begging and with floods of tears, asking him to see me and debate with me. He was now irritated and a little vexed and said, Go away from me. As you live, it cannot be that the son of these tears should perish. And she took these words as if they had sounded from heaven. I cannot speak enough of the love she had for me, writes Augustine. She suffered greater pains in my spiritual pregnancy than when she bore me in the flesh. So pious mothers have always been one of the great blessings to the church. As John Wesley, John Newton, Charles Spurgeon and others can truly attest. While in search for philosophical truth, Augustine moved away from the Christianity of his godly mother and he embraced a philosophy called Manichaeism, which made the best sense out of the world as he knew it. When his studies were completed, Augustine was offered the professorship of rhetoric in Rome and he moved there to begin his career. While in Rome, he even became a speechwriter for the Roman emperor. His talents were soon recognized and he was recommended to the chair of professor of rhetoric in Milan, Italy. And while teaching in Milan, he met the famous Bishop Ambrose and was attracted by his warm personality and his scholarly sermons. Under the influence of Ambrose, Augustine moved away from his old Manichaeism, but instead he embraced Neoplatonism, which seemed to be the philosophy of choice for a growing number of Christians who were living in Milan. He later writes, In Milan I found your devoted servant, the Bishop Ambrose. At that time his gifted tongue never tired of dispensing the richness of your corn, the joy of your oil, and the sober intoxication of your wine. Unknown to me it was you who led me to him so that I might knowingly be led by him to you. That man of God received me like a father and expressed pleasure at my coming with a kindness most fitting in a bishop. I began to like him 
At first, not as a teacher of the truth, but as a human being who was kind to me. I used enthusiastically to listen to him preaching to the people, not with the intention which I ought to have had, but as if by testing out his oratorical skill to see whether it merited the reputation it enjoyed. I hung on his diction in rapt attention, but remained bored and contemptuous of the subject matter. My pleasure was for the charm of his language. I was not interested in learning what he was talking about. My ears were only for his rhetorical technique. While I opened my heart in noting the eloquence with which he spoke, there also entered in no less the truth which he affirmed. And so Augustine found in Ambrose a man of personal piety that was infused with intense intellect, an intellect that matched his own. And as Reformed Baptists, that is the balance that we strive for, that, that personal piety of devotion with that intense intellect of understanding. And under the preaching of Ambrose, Christianity now began to appear as intellectually credible. And the preaching of Ambrose showed Augustine something of the richness and the power of the sacred texts of Scripture. So in light of this, we can see the importance of faithful and powerful preaching. We never know when God might bring into our worship service uh, some intelligent young man seeking after the truth. And every time we step into the pulpit, it ought to be in dependence upon the Lord to send forth His Word in power, in the Holy Spirit, and in full conviction. Every time we preach, it ought to be as a dying man to dying men, never sure to preach again. Well, Augustine wrote of the time when he came under conviction. He says, I was an unhappy young man, wretched as at the beginning of my adolescence, when I prayed for chastity one time and said, grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. I was afraid you might hear my prayer quickly and that you might too rapidly heal me of the disease of lust, which I preferred to satisfy rather than suppress. Augustine was not held back from Christ by anything intellectual at this time. He was held back by sexual lust. And so Christianity was intellectually credible but he didn't want to give up his sinful lifestyle. He was dominated by sexual lust. He later wrote, O oh Lord, my helper and my redeemer, I will now tell and confess to the glory of your name how you delivered me from the chain of sexual desire by which I was tightly bound and from my slavery to the things of this world. And the decisive moment in this battle took place in a small garden next to the house where he was staying. He later writes, I flung myself down beneath the fig tree and I gave way to the tears that now streamed from my eyes. In my misery I kept crying, How long shall I go on saying, Tomorrow, tomorrow, why not now? Why not make an end of my impure life at this very hour? Suddenly, I heard the voice of a child from a nearby house 
chanting over and over again, take up and read, take up and read. And at once my countenance changed and I began to think intently whether or not there might be some sort of child's game in which such a chant is used. But I could remember hearing none. I stemmed my flood of tears and I stood up telling myself that this could only be a divine command to open my book of Scripture and read the first passage on which my eyes should fall. So I hurried back to the place where I had put the book of the Apostle down. I seized it, I opened it, and in silence I read the first passage on which my eyes fell. It was from Romans 13, 13 and 14. Not in riots and drunkenness, not in lust and indecencies, not in strife and rivalries. Rather, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in its lusts. He writes, I had no wish to read more and no need to do so. For in an instant, as I came to the end of the sentence, It was as if a light of confidence flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. So Augustine was finally converted at the age of 32. He was baptized by Ambrose during Easter of the year 387 to the great joy and delight of his pious mother who happened to be there for that event. John Piper says, The experience of God's grace and Augustine's own conversion set the trajectory for his theology of grace that brought him into conflict with Pelagius and made him the source of the Reformation a thousand years later. And as a new believer, Augustine decided to return to his home in North Africa. Four years later, in 391, He was made a priest against his own will, and he was given the task of preaching. Then in 396, also against his own will, he became bishop in the town of Hippo, where he served for the rest of his life. When he became bishop in the town, he established a monastery on the church grounds where he lived, and he lived with his priests in this religious community, And he took monasticism to a whole new direction. Augustine believed that a monk could lead a contemplative life and a life of action. And so his priests had pastoral duties that would not be abandoned for a life of total total contemplation. In other words, he kicked them out of the monastery and told them to get out there and go to work. In Augustine's view, a monk's first responsibility was serving the church But study, scholarship, and contemplation would make that service all the more meaningful. And as Augustine matured both in his thinking and in the faith, he came to the conviction that man's natural reason is corrupted by sin and thus to be rejected as a way of finding truth. Can you say amen to that? He considered it wrong to elevate man's reason above Scripture as a source of authority. Augustine resolved never to deviate in the least from the authority of Christ in Scripture. And this commitment to revelation over reason is seen in his famous statement, Credo ut intelligum, translated, I believe 
in order that I may understand. See, many people want to understand before they will believe. But with him, he believed that he might better understand. As a bishop, he set about to rid the churches of the various heresies that were troubling him. He first dealt the death blow to Manichaeism. Then he attacked Donatism and finally refuted Pelagianism. Controversy was Augustine's daily vocation. And at the end of his life, he listed over 80 heresies he had fought against. Wow. He wrote over 1,000 works, including 242 books, of which we currently have 93. There, were, there are 300 of his letters and 400 out of an estimated 8,000 of his sermons have survived. And through the years, he became more consistent with making God's Word the authority of his life. And toward the end of his life, he wrote a work called Retractions, in which he corrected his earlier errors. It's a good reason why people should wait until later in life before they begin writing books. So they don't have to write other books to correct the mistakes in their first books. The best known of Augustine's writings are the Confessions, the City of God, and the Trinity. These works form a kind of trilogy which express the mature thinking of this brilliant man. In his Confessions, we have the record of his own personal drama of faith. This work is often referred to as the first Western biology, autobiology. It is saturated with the language of the Psalms. There, there was an amazing literary innovation in that it was the first time a work of self-conscious literature had incorporated the language of Scripture. But Augustine had entered a new world of religious sentiment and experience that could only be expressed in the language of the Psalms. And so the Confessions is written in the form of a prayer to God. Next is the city of God. In that, we have the dramatic history of the church that contrasts faith with unbelief. The city of God was written at the request of a friend to answer type of smear campaign against Christianity that came about on the occasion of the fall of Rome in 410. The city of God is a blend of history, philosophy, and poetry that has a charm and a beauty all of its own. And then finally, we have his work on the Trinity, which is said to be his work of greatest genius and originality in which we are presented with the dramatic history of God. It is the most weighty of his doctrinal theses. He bestowed more time and care upon it than any other book except for the city of God. He began writing this work around the year 400 and he finished it around 420. In a cover letter, he writes, I was a young man when I began these books on the Trinity, and I am now an old man as I publish them. In this letter, he complains how some tiresome admirers had gotten a hold of his manuscript. They pirated it and prematurely published it without his consent. He expressed his annoyance by ceasing on the work altogether. But eventually his friends convince him to finish the work that comprises 15 separate books 
The first seven books deal with problems set forth in the tradition of the church, problems with scripture, and then issues of linguistics and metaphysics. But from book eight onward, he covers new ground by searching for God as his image is reflected in man. This treatise was not polemical since there was, it was no concerted attack on the Trinity at the time he was writing it. And so Augustine presents this magnificent work not so much as a militant controversialist intent on eradicating heresy, but rather as the contemplative theologian on a personal search for God. And in this work, he presents his quest for the triune God as this all-absorbing personal preoccupation, as a, a type of blueprint for the spiritual life of any believer. Three times at key points, he quotes Psalm 105, verse 3 and 4, which reads, Let their hearts rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and be strengthened. Seek His face always. I trust you are here to seek the Lord this morning. The work is a summons addressed to all who fear the Lord. And his intention was to help strengthen the faith of his fellow Christians in the mystery of the Trinity. Now, one of the most basic and continuing problems of human thought is the question of the one and the many and the relationship to each other. Russus John Rush Juni in his book by the same title writes, The one and the many is perhaps the basic question of philosophy. Is unity or plurality the basic priority and fact of life? If unity is the basic nature of reality, then oneness must gain priority over particulars or the many. But if the many or plurality best describes reality, then the unit cannot gain priority over the many. If the one is ultimate, the individuals are sacrificed to the group. If the many be ultimate, then unity is sacrificed to the will of the many. So the question remains, which has primacy and priority? Plato would argue for the primacy of the one universal ideal. Aristotle would argue for the primacy of the particulars. But it is only as we come to the Christian doctrine of the ontological trinity that we find a solution to the problem of the one and the many. It is only in the trinity that we have an eternal one and many that are equally ultimate. There is an equal ultimacy of unity and plurality in the ontological trinity. Unity in God is no more fundamental than diversity, and diversity in God is no more fundamental than unity. They're equally basic in the trinity. One God and three persons. End of quote. Now, you're asking, well, what relevance does this have to the doctrine of the trinity? Every relevance because it involves two essential aspects. Numerical unity of nature and real distinction of persons. Thus, the Trinity can be presented in two ways. 
both approaches equally orthodox, yet resulting in different attitudes toward this mystery. One approach begins with the plurality of, of persons and proceeds to the assertion that the three really distinct persons are numerically one God. And historically, this was the approach that the Greek church fathers in the East, the Latin church fathers in the West all took prior to Augustine. But Augustine took a different approach and he started with the oneness of God's essence. He saw the important contributions of the church fathers that they made to the doctrine of the Trinity. They chose the word hypostasis as the best word fitted to express person. And their formula for expressing God's triunity was one usia in three hypostases, which means God is one in essence and three in person. And so Augustine began with the one essence of God. And from there, he's, he's set to show forth that this one God is in three persons. Bruce Ware writes, An orthodox definition of the Trinity, taken from Augustine's insights, affirms that God's whole and undivided essence belong equally, eternally, simultaneously, and fully to each of the three persons of the Godhead. Augustine could say, so great is the equality in this Trinity that not only is the Father not greater than the Son in that which pertains to the divinity, but neither are the Father and the Son anything greater than the Holy Spirit, nor is each singly anything less than the Trinity itself. And they are infinite in themselves. And so, each is in each, all are in each, each is in all, all are in all, and all are one. Pretty good stuff, isn't it? <clears throat> now, think what this is claiming. It affirms that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit each possesses the divine nature equally so as to avoid the heresy of Arianism. And each possess the divine nature eternally so as to avoid thinking of God's nature as being created. Each possesses the divine nature simultaneously so as to avoid the heresy of modalism. And each possesses it fully so as to avoid any tripartite understanding of the Trinity like a pie divided in three equal pieces. The Father... The Son and the Holy Spirit are not each one-third God, but each is fully God, equally God, and this is true eternally and simultaneously. Augustine helped to hammer all of this out in the, the early 400s. Look how long ago that was. And the amazing thing about that is we have not improved upon that in any substantial way. Augustine admits that the Trinity is very difficult to explain. He sought to explain it by using certain analogies found in the image 
of God in man, especially in the mind. He, he had a psychological analogy of the Trinity that is quite original. And according to this, as human beings created in the image of God, an image of the Trinity should be found in each of us in the psychology of the human mind. And he pointed to many vestiges of the Trinity in the mind, such as that of lover, loved, and the love that they have between them. That of being, of knowing, and willing. That of memory, of understanding, and the will. That of the object seen, the attention of the mind, and the external vision. And yet, Augustine realized the limitations of these analogies. He acknowledged that they were imperfect. And he concludes his work by saying, I venture to acknowledge openly that I have said nothing worthy of this unimaginable mystery, but must rather confess that this knowledge is too wonderful for me and has been too mighty and that I have not been able to reach it. So in a real sense, he admits that he failed in his attempt to explain the Trinity. And yet how marvelously he failed. For in so doing, he raised the bar of understanding higher than anyone before. And he has left us with this amazing treasure chest of of wisdom and knowledge that we can expand upon. He summed up the work of his predecessors. He laid a strong foundation for subsequent Trinitarian theology to be built upon. One of his quotes in his book on the Trinity, he writes, Anyone who denies the Trinity is in danger of losing his salvation. But anyone who tries to understand the Trinity is in danger of losing his mind. One of the heresies that he fought against were known as the academic skeptics. He writes, we resemble the divine trinity in that we exist. We know that we exist and we are glad of this existence and this knowledge. I have no fear of the arguments of the academics. They say, well, suppose you are mistaken. And I reply, if I am mistaken, I exist. A non-existent being cannot be mistaken. Therefore, I must exist even if I am mistaken. Then since my being mistaken proves that I exist, how can I be mistaken in thinking that I exist, seeing that my mistake establishes my existence? That's great stuff. This also prepared the way for the philosopher Descartes' famous statement, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I exist. Well, Augustine still challenges us today regarding the attitude to take in approaching this mystery. He insisted that all Trinitarian theology must arise from a heart and mind trained in humility. I mean, who do we think we are to try to claim that we've figured out God and that we can explain all the mystery about his character and essence? We are but worms. God is awesome. We will never fully understand and be able to explain Him. 
Augustine insisted that Trinitarian reflection can only blossom in a person who realizes the enormity of what is being attempted and our place before God. This truth is a mystery beyond our comprehension. Humans can only safely speak of God from our knees. And Augustine urges us to remember who we are and of whom we speak. For Augustine's spiritual insight and holiness of life were inextricably linked together. Theology must be practiced in both mind and heart. And a diseased life would lead to a diseased theology. Holy character is demanded if holy things are to be understood and to be interpreted well. Augustine would want us to know that the doctrine of the Trinity should not be viewed as some theological dogma that is irrelevant to the Christian life and practice. And yet how few pastors preach on the doctrine of the Trinity these days. How seldom do we hear messages on the Trinity on the contrary, it is only because of this doctrine that believers are able to live a life of faith at all. Think about it. Without the Trinity, how in the world could we even pray? Don't we pray to the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit? And without the Trinity, how could we preach the Gospel? Stuart Elliott said the doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation upon which every distinctive gospel doctrine rests. History shows that whenever the foundation has been weakened or destroyed, the gospel has quickly fallen to the ground and disappeared. Therefore, all who love the gospel and know its power love the doctrine of the Trinity and are anxious to uphold it. They know that the gospel they have is the gospel of God. And once it is forgotten who God is, it will soon be forgotten what His gospel is. Without the doctrine of the Trinity, the whole plan of redemption falls to pieces. No other figure had a greater impact on Christian life and thought up to the time of the Reformation than Augustine. B.B. Warfield said, When the great revival of religion which we call the Reformation came, it was on its theological side a revival of Augustinianism as all great revivals of religion must be. It's amazing to see the influence that Augustine had upon the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther, he became a monk in the Augustinian monastery. And Calvin quoted more from the works of Augustine than all the other church fathers together. John Piper says, Few people in the history of the church have surpassed Augustine in portraying the greatness and beauty and desirability of God. He is utterly persuaded by Scripture and experience that he is happy who possesses God. He is happy who possesses God. You have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. And while the Vandals besieged the city of Hippo in the year 430, this aged bishop lay there in his bed, sick and worn out from all his work. His bedroom was very plain, 
The only decorations on the walls were passages from the penitential psalms that he asked to be placed there so that they might be constantly read by him. And so Augustine passed into glory on August 28th, the year 430, at the age of 76. And a contemporary writer said upon his death, Thus ceased to flow that river of eloquence which had watered the thirsty fields of the church. Thus passed away the glory of preachers, the master of doctors, and the light of scholars. Thus fell the courageous combatant who with the sword of truth had given heresy a mighty blow. Thus set this glorious son of Christian doctrine, leaving the world in darkness and tears. So I hope this has given you a greater appreciation of the doctrine of the Trinity and the man through whom we have received it. I hope it has given you a better appreciation of the importance of church history, of those who have labored long and hard with the Word of God and have left us an enduring record for our benefit that we might be able to stand upon their shoulders, as it were, and to see further down the path of God's truth and revelation. I trust that you will have a better appreciation of the mystery of our God, of His essence, how He can be one and yet three at the same time. I hope this will encourage you to worship this God, to live for Him, to honor Him, and to do all things to His glory and praise. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do praise you for the work of men that you have raised up to serve the church, to help the saints in wrestling through the difficult doctrines of your word. We thank you for your love to your people that you've raised up at different times in in history. Men and women of God who have been able to help the church in its growth. And in her piety, we thank you, Lord, for the glorious truth of your word. Oh, may your word always be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. May we hide your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Help us to see that we do serve a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The one who is holy, 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 who is worthy of our love worthy of our obedience, uh, worthy of our admiration. Lord, help us to go forth this day praising you, worshiping you, and living to your glory. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.